On this episode of the Presbyterian Reformed Churchman, I have a returned friend and guest, Rich Lino from Stafford, Virginia. And what church are you from, Rich? I'm from Hope of Christ Church in Stafford, Virginia. Okay, Hope of Christ. It's PCA Church. And we've had Rich on before. I encourage you to uh, listen to that episode early early on, probably a month ago or, or a little more, and you can get to know him a bit. Today we're going to be talking about what it means to be confessional. It's a word you may hear bandied about, thrown around, that we are confessional men. And as part of this discussion, it has to do with another term called subscription, which means how we view the confession, how we subscribe to the confession. And so what I think I want to do is read a little bit of this article from Charles Hodge to kick us off. So Richard, as we were discussing this, Rich sent me this from the PCA History website. It's an article by Charles, Charles Hodge that J. Gresham Machen had pulled together. So this was po- uh, published posthumously in the middle of the liberalism uh, controversy that was going on in the church, the modernist controversy. And so really early in this article, just to kick us off a couple sentences here, Hodge writes, the question put to every candidate for ordination in our church is in these words, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith of this church as contained in the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? The next paragraph, it says, it is no less plain that the candidate has no right to put his own sense upon the words propounded to him. He has no right to select from all possible meanings which the words may bear. That particular sense which suits his purpose or which he thinks will save his conscience. That is just a. I only just saw this, Rich, when you sent it to me less than an hour ago, and I was shocked by that because that's, I think, at the heart of what's going on now with what I call the postmodernist controversy with the twisting of language. And Brad Isbell on my last episode kind of highlighted that, that word games were going on during this controversy 100 years ago also. Uh, so this, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing men uh, affirm the confession, but then hold very different views on what it means to affirm the confession. So maybe I can ask you, Rich, to kick this off. Like, what does it mean to be confessional? Before we get into subscription, and maybe maybe it has to go right into subscription, but what does it mean to be confessional when we say that? We want to be confessional men. Yeah, and so um, for those of you who noticed, I'm smoking a cigar during this. I hope you don't uh, get offended for anybody here, but I assume the people that uh, are listening are, 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 are understand that Presbyterians enjoy an occasional cigar. So you, you just outed Erskine, yourself as Erskine um, as Erskine enjoined think and smoke tobacco. But um, the uh, you know, so I don't. I starting out, I don't want to. Um, pretend like uh, the definitions that we offer are the final word on that because this is kind of a uh, you know very complex conversation in terms of what it means to be confessional and there are different um, individuals and churches over uh, Presbyterian history who have come up with different um, ideas of confessional for instance in some of the Dutch reform tradition uh, the entire confession has to be accepted you know every every you know every portion of that there's no ability to kind of take exception to aspects of the confession 
So I think R. Scott Clark, as an example, is a good example of, you know, saying, hey, if there are people that want to rephrase certain things, then we ought to kind of, uh, we ought to kind of, you know, redo the confession. I think that, um, you know, especially as you uh, see what Hodge wrote and others um, have written, uh, you know, and, 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 and I guess aligned with Scottish Presbyterian history, and then um, going into American Presbyterian history, I think that in general, to be confessional is to align yourself with the reformed system of doctrine in terms of the um, the propositions that are in there, uh, believing that, um, you know, I've always said that one of the things that distinguished the Reformation when I'm trying to explain why why would we conf- have a confession is that if you believe that the that, that what we believe is that the scriptures are perspicuous, that they were... Um, you know, perspicuous in matters concerning salvation, and that uh, stable men are able to not twist the scriptures, then uh, the reading of the scriptures and the um, understanding of them should allow the church to actually come together and say, hey, here's what the scriptures teach, and to confess together, this is what the scriptures principally teach concerning matters of salvation, concerning the nature of mankind, concerning... um, you know what God has revealed to us, what may be known of Him concerning Him, and and uh, how man is to to be reconciled to Him, etc. And so, out of that emerges a common confession. So, to to be confessional, first of all, is to believe that the church itself is the one that's the the given the confession. It's it's not principally my confession, and often it's uh, the confession is treated as if it's something that I've that that like you say. Well, what do you confess? You say, well, I confess the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then I've got all these other confessions, which which are interesting, but the, the real question is, what is the church confessing together? And then from that, when a person comes to a church, instead of as, you know, what what we used to talk about when we were, you know, one of the things that I remember uh, being attractive about the Presbyterian Church in America, or OPC, when I uh, became Reformed back in the late 90s, was that you know, you go to, uh, you know, Campbellite Church or maybe a Calvary Chapel, they say, well, we don't, we don't have a confession. We don't, we, you don't need a confession. I just teach what the scriptures teach. And then you hear what a person's confession is one sermon as, at a time. Whereas what we, what we as, as Presbyterians have historically done is saying, no, we're going to actually tell you what we confess. And we're going to provide a summary um a summary exposition of key doctrines and saying these are what the scriptures teach. And um, some of those are not unique to the Presbyterian Church. Some of them are Catholic um, teachings about the nature of God um, being three persons in one and um, that the hypostatic union, one God in, in two persons, things of that nature, things that we share in common in the Catholic tradition, the resurrection of the dead, etc. And then you have... Um, um, more, you have other uh, things that are sort of substantively uh, essential to the Christian church, but then have a certain form that are unique to a particular um, church tradition. You know, we differ from uh, Roman Catholics about the nature of, uh, you know, about the effects of original sin and some of the details in terms of how it's propagated, or we differ from Baptist communions on, on the nature of the sacrament of baptism, or even whether or not, um, you know, things are mere signs. And so the confession is really uh, a way in which it's 
meant to form as kind of a unifying bond for a particular um, uh, a particular uh, expression of the church Catholic. And so Presbyterians don't believe we're the only um, church, but that within our particular church, which where we don't consider other people to not be part of the church Catholic, but it's a way to provide unity and um, common purpose as far as how we're going to teach the scriptures, because we believe that the word of God um, teaches these things, and we want to have kind of a common way of expressing uh, what the scriptures principally teach and hold each other accountable to that and have have kind of, I guess, uh, right and left lateral limits to say, these are what the scriptures teach, and, and you're either it, it's not everything that the scriptures teach, but on these matters, we, um, we, we, we commonly confess these doctrines. Hopefully that's a, a good summary conversation about that, our starting point. Right, right, and just for listeners that aren't familiar with with uh, with language, when Rich says Catholic, he's speaking, of course, of uh, well, he used it in multiple senses there, but the universal church uh, across denominations. Uh, but I think once he did refer to the Roman Catholic Church in that, and so yeah, it provides a, you know when you said the lateral, I guess guardrails, particular to a denomination, and uh, the Presbyterian and Reformed churches are. Confessional churches, which means we subscribe to, in, in our case, as Rich said, the Westminster Standards, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The problem, Rich, is everybody in the PCA, uh, all teaching elders take vows to these, and all ruling elders uh, have a similar vow that you took, and um, but but only teaching elders have to say if we have any differences with with the belief. But my point is every pastor, every teaching elder in the PCA has agreed to the Westminster standards with the exception of whatever exceptions they were granted. And we'll get into the, that level of subscription after. And so clearly with all the differences and disagreements that we're having in, in our denomination, there, there's got to be a, we, we obviously have different understandings of the confession and what it means to be confessional, or the confession just doesn't speak to the things that we're disagreeing about. What What do you think it is? Um, I mean, I, I think that the issue is is complex because, you know, um, I think that in general, what I've noticed is that there's there's sort of a, um, I guess, an approach to the confessions where a person kind of treats them as something that they read through once or a few times and then they kind of uh, look at it and they think, okay, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Or, um, But then there's something maybe underneath uh, what they actually believe, what they actually hold to be most important. And I think that, you know, uh, granted that the, the, the Westminster standards, especially when you factor in it's more than the confession of faith, but includes the larger and shorter catechisms, that there's a lot of information in there. And there's a lot of, of depth in, in, in those. And I think that none of us, when we first read through the confessions or the catechisms, even if we've gone through seminary, um, uh, even if we've read a number of books, uh, even study guides on these things, really kind of uh, fully um, you know, grasp some of the depth that's in there. And I think it takes, you know, it's, it takes some, 
some you know it's part of our vows too to study the peace and purity of the church even that um we're you know we're all called to is to try and understand what what it is that we're confessing and i think that there um you know as i described recently to some fellow elders i think that what um describes generally those that i would you know broadly describe as confessional and i know that that's that may be a pejorative term to those who say well i'm confessional too I'm just trying to, you know, describe a group of people that tend to try and say, well, what when when these uh, confessions were actually written, uh, what what do these propositions mean? What are they trying to convey? What is what are the words trying to convey in each one of these um, these chapters and paragraphs and or or sentences? What what do these words mean? And trying to understand those, um, I think I've seen some approaches in contrast where people have um, uh, have more of a uh, they they think that they understand what they mean and then they and then they treat the the confession or the catechisms as sort of you know like um, as it were sort of uh, I don't know uh, they don't completely understand them and they say well I I subscribe to this but then when when it comes to the actual practice they don't actually um, I guess uh, they don't actually in some cases, they don't understand them, or or they may have a problem with them, and they don't always articulate that they're that they disagree with them. They don't actually, even though they're they're required to state their differences, they they don't either know to state their differences or they don't clearly state their differences and provide the church an opportunity to actually assess what the um, what the effect of that is. I would also say too that when you don't completely understand. The confession and the, how the system holds together, and I think system's a good way of, of describing that. I, I liken it sometimes to like an engine, where there's a lot of parts in there, and there are certainly parts of the engine that are that seem more important than the others. But um, you know, it's sort of like saying I'm stating a difference um, uh, with the need for an oil cap, and I can just you know I, I'm good with leaving the oil cap off, for instance. And since you don't understand the operation of the system itself, then 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 the, the engine will run for a while, but eventually it breaks down because the thing that you didn't understand how it fit into the system is is ends up ca- causing causing wreaking havoc because of the, the way that things are interconnected. And it seems like it may not be um, an important part to that. And neither... Um, in some cases, the persons um, stating the difference, nor the, in some cases, the people evaluating them don't understand that this is actually kind of like hostile, as it were, to the operation of the system. And I'll, I'll give an example. When I first, uh, went, one of my very first presbytery exams that I participated in as an observer and then uh, had to, um, you know, uh, well, I, I, it was a man who had taken an exception to, or stated a difference on Pado communion. And I was kind of, I was surprised because what ended up happening in the course of the examination was that he had written a paper as to why he believed in Pado communion and the exam proceeded and people started to, to challenge on the, um, I guess, the coherence of saying, I believe in Pado communion, but there's so many things in the system of doctrine that are, are it, it's it's hostile to it in terms of how you understand whether or not whether or not even um, the 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 sacrament can be uh, beneficial to the ignorant. 
And so, you know, it, it either is good or it's not good for children. One, one um, you know, kindly elder said, like, well, he wrote a paper as to why he believes this. So why are we bothering? Why are we kind of grilling him on this? It was almost in some people's minds sufficient that he had stated why he believed that. Um, another, when um, somebody pointed out that the ignorant aren't supposed to receive, looked at another portion and said, well, you know, it also says infidels. Are we saying our children are infidels? And it's almost like you don't understand. This is a list of people where, that shouldn't be taking this. And so you see in that kind of not not an understanding of, well, why it seems harmless on the one hand. Some people practice pedo communion, some people don't. Why is that a big deal? And and that that's, I guess that's kind of illustrative at times within the PCA of how this this debate proceeds because neither the man um, uh, taking the exam nor the persons charged to evaluate him in some cases are actually thinking through what the you know what it means that the confession teaches a certain view on who should be approaching the table as an example. And it's not to say yeah. that there aren't Christians that practice something differently, but this is our conviction as a Presbyterian church in terms of what the confessions actually teach. Man, you, I had something I wanted to say, but that last sentence you just said, we, we're going to have to go back to, because that's that's so crucial. I mean, maybe I will make just a comment on it right now, is uh, what we're talking about is how the PCA in our context needs to operate, not that other denominations aren't don't have aren't brothers and sisters in Christ not that we can't partner with them but right. mm -hmm. we're talking about our system of belief and i i like that you you brought it to the credentials committee or, or whatever you know testing of men because uh, i've been on two different in two presbyteries, both presbyteries I've been in i've been on the uh, the ordinate the credentials committee or leadership development team we call it and I think where it's really easy to see what's going on with the confession is when you ask men about covenant theology, it forms a corollary. For instance, I remember once we were testing a man, this is a number of years ago, and I asked, the question was about covenant theology, and he rattled off the covenants. He may have even said the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, but then he talked about the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, you know, each one. Um, Abrahamic, Davidic, New Covenant. So I said, okay, well, how, how does that work together, and what are the implications of that? He had no idea. In other words, he knew the... It was somebody trying to be... It was it was a candidate. Okay. In other words, he knew the the nuts and bolts, the like you said, the, the oil cover, whatever. You know, he, he knew the parts, but he didn't know how it fit together, how it gives us one view of salvation history, one way of how God works. Yes, in different administrations, but to him, it was it was just a list, a bulleted list to recite. And so, you know, I think of this like with, with Tulip also, you know, um, the five points of Calvinism. When people say they're four-point Calvinists, they, you, you can't take one away. Right. <laughs> the the right. you know, you can't say, well, I'm for all of them except limited atonement, which sometimes is what they. And I'm like, right. The whole thing falls apart if you pull away limited atonement. You know, and when it comes to our confession, what I'm finding more and more is, guys are willing to affirm the nuts and bolts, the individual doctrines, 
you know, the, the normal two exceptions we see are, uh, you know, the Sabbath uh, recreation clause of the Sabbath, and usually that's determined to be the way the candidate will describe it as um, semantic, but uh, um, mm -hmm. as semantic. And then, of course, the images of Christ, which is usually non-semantic, but then people say not striking at the vitals of the faith or attacking the system of doctrine or whatever. And so they think, okay, well, I'm confessional because I agree with all the individual statements in, in the chapters of the confession without a sense of how the thing works together and what the implications are for that. Right. In other words, yeah. you can't, and, and, you know, I think we were seeing this in the side, the side B debates where men will affirm, especially when they were shown, <laughs> well, this is what it actually says about indwelling sin or progressive mm -hmm. sanctification, affirm that, but then in practice, think all this other stuff is okay because it was able to check the box in their mind of each of those doctrines in the confession. And so am I, am I making sense about yeah, like the I idea think, of affirming yeah. nuts and bolts as opposed to how it, it connects? Well, they do, I think a good example is the image of Christ, images of Christ issue and where um, it, seems, it seems like... Uh, uh, for instance, there's the, what I call the frame objection, and sometimes you almost feel like men are kind of coached into this as if it's something that's just on its surface obvious, uh, where somebody says, well, it's, um, I can't, I, you know, like, I can't not form a mental image of Christ when I read, uh, you know, a story of Christ doing something. And so, therefore, it must not be um, a violation of of you know the um, a violation of of the second commandment as an example. Well, you know I've always asked I've always asked men. I said so. What you're saying is that because you feel like you can't obey in a commandment, that it shouldn't be that it's not an actual commandment, and that that's caused a few people to just kind of reject out of hand. Like oh, I guess I'm going to take that back because I didn't really think through that particular point that's being made. It's like the impossibility, it's almost like a Pelagian argument, like I can't conceive of me of my of being able to obey this commandment, therefore it must not be a commandment in God's law. And uh, beyond that, it would go into the issue of uh, other more uh, profound issues where during one GA, somebody came up and, and talked about like, well, we're denying Christ's humanity by uh, uh, by the idea that we can't depict them, and then not even understanding even basic Chalcedonian Christology that that we're talking about the person, where that there, that there's no way to separate the person in terms of his natures, and saying just because you're depicting the human nature, you're still depicting the Son of God, and who is God? That's right. So these are the kinds of things where people say these things, and you would you would think that if they understood the system as to why that's there. You can you could you could argue with the people as to why they put it, but at least uh, at least follow through, as it were, on all the reasons, uh, all the possible objections that you're going to have that deal not even with distinctively reformed ideas as far as that goes, but then as far as even just basic Chalcedonian Christology in terms of the arguments you come up with, or even Augustinian versus Pelagian arguments that you may make that might not even be distinct to. Um, you know, the Presbyterian Church. And so those are the kinds of things over time that I just, 
I guess that that's the reason why we examine men to see how they're thinking through those. And some some are content. I think this gets to how, how you how you view examination. It's almost like I've never believed that we should have certain things in which we just say, well, that's kind of like a, a standard exception. So as long as he states the exception in the form, like he he kind of uh, says shibboleth in the right way, that we say, okay, you're good. You you said you stated that exception in the form that we accept. And in some presbyteries, they don't even they don't even um, require a man to state an ex- a difference uh, on on the confession because they've already agreed that there's there's three views of the days of creation where, you know, I I've I've always been for and have fought for the fact that not only um, do they have to articulate that so that we can see we can hear from them how they're formulating these theological ideas and not merely um, you know going through the motions as it were of stating a difference but then even allowing men to um, to to uh, uh, ask questions and to challenge certain things it's it's almost like um, I remember in one case we had an examination in which a ruling elder not knowing that there were sort of rules that had been established by um, in terms of almost common consent, in terms of how much people will be uh, pushed certain things, somebody kind of later on challenged the idea, we shouldn't be asking this question of him. And, I, and then, you know, that, at, at that point, I stood up and said, We're, we, can't, we can't bar a man's liberty of conscience who's examining a ruling elder to ask these questions. I challenged that idea because the very worst thing for any church is to move away from what uh, we believe scripturally or confessionally, and to be able to 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 press a man and say, defend that. Let me see how your mind th- works. Let me see. Let me challenge you. Let's see if you're thinking through these things rather than just saying, well, we've got this um, we've got this exercise we need to go through to to move on to more important matters. We need to understand how um, uh, how people are 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 processing and applying theology, and it's not. The only thing that's important, but it's a very important thing because how a man um, puts these things together, and as you mentioned, even in the covenants, not even understanding the covenant and Christ as mediator, you almost have no apprehension at all at how the confession itself or how how the standards operate in terms of how central um, Christ the mediator in the covenant of grace is to the entire system of doctrine. That's like the engine at that point. You're not even talking about Reformed theology if you don't understand that. Right. Oh, oh, man, that was good. So what do you think? Why do you think that is the the um, the apprehensiveness in a lot of presbyteries to actually dig in deeper with guys? Is it because there's such a strong relational tie in the process that we don't want to, you know, we know the guy's heart. We know he, you know, we know he's a Calvinist. He's been ministering in this church for three years already. This is just a box to check. Like or do you know, people like the latitude? Yeah. I mean, I think you know it's interesting because I I had um, shared some thoughts recently on on at least my views of like you know uh, certain challenges within the PCA and our PCA historian shared a good article about um, about uh, you know sort of the uh, thoroughly reformed controversies that occurred in you know uh, you know several years ago in the PCA and. 
And I think that what's interesting about that article is sort of an admission that because the PCUS was where it was theologically, that you had sort of a neglect of the confessions to the point where the PCA was formed. And you, you um, you had churches that were, you know, in some cases Arminian within the PCA and other other cases that were just uh, you know um, far away from our doctrinal standards and so what can happen I think is sort of a headstrong sort of confessionalism without a sense of how you would actually bring a person from a church that's sort of been neglected as it were theologically for for a long time to bring them to a point where they understand certain things rather than just being pushed along or or sort of like cajoled in a certain direction. And so I think that this, um, this uh, confessional integrity in some ways, you know, when you're, when you're applying that to a specific church takes some time because the persons within the church aren't necessarily, um, don't always understand these things. And that's one of the reasons why we want ministers and elders to really understand these as well as officers, because it should reflect the, the kind of ministry that we do. But I think what that also maybe led to is uh, maybe some wariness over time historically in trying to argue for these things. And then I also think that, you know, and I'm saying this and um, for anybody watching this who is, you know, from the South, um, I don't intend to offend by saying this, but I'm not Southern by family and I grew up in the military. And so Southern culture, I'm kind of a transplant to it. So I'm not, I don't claim to be um, really immersed in Southern culture, but there's sort of a, uh, a gentlemanly aspect to um, Southern culture that I don't think always wants to confront with things and wants to get along. And I noticed that when I first came in. And in some cases, some people um, have a problem, I think, with the PCA's historical dealings with certain issues where that that kind of like, hey, we don't want to ruffle feathers led to certain things. But I also think that that leads to maybe um, at times a you know like, well, we're not gonna we're not gonna bother. We don't want to be too too. Um, uh, strident on that thing because it just doesn't seem gentlemanly, so so to speak. And and um, I'm just you know I, I know I'm speculating a little bit. And in in, in other cases, um, I think that uh, there's there's what I would say that are more fundamental commitments by some. I think that some people are more focused on a certain kind of I guess if you will call it a, a missional. Uh, that's kind of forms the basis that the the missional ideas in terms of what the church should be in terms of, um, uh, you know, that, that, that theology itself. And reform theology is sort of more of a desktop variant on that, whereas the, the, the fundamentals uh, are, tend to be more along the ideas of kind of missional cooperation to transform the culture. And, um, and we just happen to be sort of a, a sort of um, Calvinistic version of that, but less important is how the system holds together. More important is whether or not the missional aspects are being accomplished, if that makes sense. Yes, and so let, I love where you just went because missional, a missional is missionalism is basically a philosophy of ministry. And I, I saw a funny tweet that basically said, uh, you know, question during ordination exam: What's your philosophy of ministry? And then the answer is Westminster, the Westminster standards. You know, and then somebody quoted, "Are you saying the Westminster standards is a philosophy of ministry?" Yes, <laughs> right. and so. 
an understanding of the entire system of the Westminster Standards, which goes from you know our doctrine of Scripture to the nature, uh, well, to who God is, uh, to the creation, providence, the nature of man, and then what the kingdom of God looks like and the church is very much a philosophy of ministry. And so, yeah. you know, it's often like what you said earlier. It, you didn't say it this way, but I've often heard it's like, you know, the confession is something that we we say we agree to, we read it when we get ordained, then we stick it on a shelf. And now we're up to the figure out how to do ministry in the world. But that's not the way it should be. I mean, that's not what it means to be confessional. Well, you know, and just to just to cause even more controversy, and I don't know how many people uh, watch this, but my my view is that you know, and I and I study I studied missional theology. I've 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 read books, several books, as well as scholarly articles on it. I'm convinced that missional missional is more than mere philosophy because your theology drives your philosophy. And um, yes, you may remember that years ago, Covenant had changed its it's um, changed its department of systematic, uh, systematic theology, and, and I can't remember practical theology to put them all under missional theology. And then when asked to basically uh, uh, articulate why they had done that, they said, "We'll do that." And what they what they responded with is essentially a an internet post describing that. And what you read in that are are basically are um, is sort of a, if you will. Uh, uh, affirmations about the character of God himself. And so they may or may not be true, so to speak. We don't need to debate whether or not what they're saying about God, um, God's nature, certain, but they're, they're affirming certain things. And then, and then missional then becomes the thing by which, by which systematics themselves is articulated. And so in one sense, what we have if we say, well, this is true, and then we have the confession, what you have is that if the confession is interpreted on top of this thing that we know that God truly is, then we should be going back to the confession and saying, this is what we assert about the nature of God himself in this missional schema, because that's what drives that. And there's even ideas about what Romans 8 asserts about, you know, what God's um, purpose is in terms of uh, redeeming the world, so to speak, and all that that entails. And so if we if we believe that, then those things should be so central that we should be looking to make sure that we're saying that about the nature of God and about the nature of the covenant, etc. But what we do instead is that we don't even realize that we're in the in the process of defining sort of core systematic um, confessional ideas that actually overarching and the Westminster standards are below here, which is why I think a lot of cases people don't realize what they're saying is that, that we, we haven't really stated our confession. We're not putting our confession out there, but the Westminster standards then, whenever they come up, are almost like, because they're not as core and central to that, they become the thing by which people say, well, that's not scripture. That's not that they're just they're secondary documents. But what they're not actually in a lot of cases articulating is this thing that they just believe that the, everybody understands that the scriptures teach, but the church hasn't come together and defined that to say we confess together that this is what the scriptures teach about the nature of God. And in 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 addition to everything else that we've said about him in the confession being immutable, all these other things, he's also 
he's also ascending God, as it were, and 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 the things that entail in that. So, I'm just I'm just articulating that that's sort of how confessions can kind of operate because we have certain commitments that are in fact systematic, that are overarching ideas, and then the confessions either operate. Um, subservient to them, or we put them back into the confession so that the, the church can confess those together. So we often argue that it's a, it's a, uh, a philosophy of ministry, which it certainly is, but we ought, what we miss is that there's theological commitments that undergird that, whereas, you know, from the standpoint of somebody who is kind of, as it were, kind of bleeds Westminsterian, you know, it's not that we don't believe that we're going out to the world, so to speak, and um, proclaiming the gospel, but the the covenant of grace and the, the Christ being the mediator and all these other things in terms of the means of grace all flow from that. And it's not like we're saying, oh, I'm a slave to the system of doctrine, but we're reading the scriptures and, you know, re- daily, and we're, we're um, growing in grace by these things. And the commitment is is we're, we're committed to the Westminster Confession because that's what we believe is at the core of how the covenant grace operates to, to men and women who would have no fruition with God at all unless he condescended to us by means of covenant and, and, is a, and, and, um, and, and, and through Christ the Mediator gave us the ability to see and to understand these things. Oh, yeah, praise God. So let's talk about subscription then. And uh, we, we've kind of talked around it. Men can take differences, and presbyteries can allow exceptions. That's how it's. Uh, I believe that RBCO would would word it. Men state differences with the confession, and we the presbytery has to determine if if they're going to allow that difference if it's not hostile to the system of doctrine or whatever. And so, what are the different views of subscription, and how do you view that as impacting this whole discussion? So that's an interesting question. In fact, you know, it's one of those things where the, my vision sometimes gets in the way of me being able to kind of go back and say, well, let me take notes. So if George is asking this, I'm going to use the precise term that, that is used. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, this is where sometimes, uh, it, and this gets into maybe historical ignorance or even overreaction to what people are talking about when... Um, who was it that wrote for the GRN maybe a year or two ago about um, uh, who's the Scottish man, the man from Scotland that is in uh, First Presbyterian? I'm gonna I'm embarrassed. David Strain. David Strain. So po- apologies, Reverend Strain, if you happen to watch this podcast, but um, he wrote it. What I thought was a very uh, uh, articulate and very um, I guess uh, you know an article that that few should have a problem with saying, hey, I'm not tilting at windmills with good faith subscription. That's what we are as a denomination. And essentially what he was arguing for is that that within the PCA, um, the idea is that, um, first of all, uh, there was a debate in the PCA years ago on on kind of strict, strict, strict subscription versus good faith. And several Persons argued um, in in both directions on that, but essentially it was it was asked that we can't all agree across the denomination on which aspects of the confession we can um, determine that a man can you know take you know state a difference with, and whether or not we're going to agree that that uh, strikes at the vitals of religion. We should agree on that part at least, or is hostile to the system of doctrine, so we're going to leave it up to the presbytery. 
But the point um, um, Dr. Strain was making was that when a man says that he uh, receives the system of doctrine, he does that on good faith, that this is the only thing that he's stating a difference with. And the point is then that the confession should be the thing that we're kind of arguing from and trying to provide that as a means of unity, that, that, that the confession itself kind of forms, I guess, as it were, the template around which discussions should take place to say, well, let's, let's you know, uh, agree as a, a, a denomination to kind of move in that direction. And it was sort of met with, shockingly, by some people that I thought had, you know, like even one lawyer who I thought, well, if this is how he reads uh, an article like that, I just wonder how he, you know, reads complex legal documents saying that what he was arguing for is strict subscription. So I, I'm I'm setting that all up because knowing another number of strict subscription um denominations in the PCA, they tend to be very small. Uh, even the OPC isn't strict subscription. Strict subscription are, are people that uh, essentially don't allow for any any stated differences, anything from the Westminster Confession. Everything's accepted, inc including denominations that still adhere to um, the idea of civil magistrates calling for synods and, and things of that nature and an establishmentarian context and everything and, and, and accepting everything. Whereas, you know, uh, as far back as, um, you know, 1729, when the uh, American Presbyterian Church was trying to to come up with ways that they could uh, receive the confession in America, they they basically essentially uh, received the entire uh, system of doctrine and allowed men to essentially state differences with issues on that very point on on um, the civil magistrate's role. Given you know all the things that had happened for you know over a hundred years or almost a hundred years in the experience of America and the very reason why people were you know, fleeing persecution as nonconformists in England and that sort of thing. And so we've always had, I think Presbyterianism has, from that point, always had folks who um, at least uh, over time maybe drifted from that to the point around Machen um, and even in Hodge where some people uh, moved from, say, uh, uh, well, I'm going to use the word system subscription because that was the, the the subscription that Hodge defined it as. Some some people use the word system description to refer to what Hodge calls substance of doctrine subscription, where they say, I I I affirm the substance of the doctrine of say the fall of man. And Hodge's point in his article is like, look, there's there's you can affirm the fall of man as a Pelagian, as an Augustinian, you know, or or whatever. You can affirm baptism as a Baptist or whatever. It matters how you affirm the form of that actually matters. And so what what um, I think what we have in the PCA is some people say this is a good faith subscription denomination. And those of us who are confessional say, we agree it's a good faith subscription, which means that when you look at this, we're looking at the form of the, the system of doctrine. We're saying this is not only the substance, but this is what distinguishes it from Presbyterianism. Whereas I think what good faith subscription has come to mean um, for many is that they affirm the substance of it, and then it allows for equivocation on what those actually, what the, what those um, things actually mean. And so, um, you know, uh, we have to practice communion. And so I affirm the substance that there needs to be communion and then whether or not there are 
uh, our children or our, our, our young children uh, who are ignorant are present or not is really immaterial to some. Whereas we're saying, no, the, the, the form actually matters in terms of what we affirm by that or the nature of the sacrament itself. Is it a mere sign? Is it a sign and a seal? You know, um, getting into federal vision, whether or not, um, you know, the, the, a person who's non-elect actually participates in the means of grace or, or the seals of those. And so these kinds of things matter in terms of how we, we do that and uh, understand that. And I think... Um, some will be probably dissatisfied with kind of the rambling that I'm getting at, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the the primary um, the primary view you could argue is or differences are those that are strict, um, uh, those that are more uh, system in terms of the way that Hodge defined it, and those that are more substance of uh, of doctrine kind of of subscriptionists. Uh, we don't have strict subscriptionists within the PCA in a, in the truest sense. I know some are going to disagree with me on that. I know that Morton Smith, I think, argued for that, and he allowed for people to scruple on terminology and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, and I'll take my licks from anybody who's more historically um, uh, learned than me. But in general, we I think we, we're in the PCA because we recognize that there are going, there is going to be an, an ability uh, for us, as I did when I, I, I stated my difference with the Puritan view on instruments and non-exclusive, you know, non-exclusive psalmody and saying, I don't agree with them on, on that particular issue, um, not, not neglecting the RPW or other kinds of things, but in terms of the way that that, 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 arguments formulated, I'm going to state my difference and then allow, you know, obviously nobody in the PCA really has a problem with that because we're not exclusive psalmody, but that's, that's just, hopefully what I'm saying makes sense, I guess, in the sense that, um, uh, we have, we, we are not strict. We are, we are, um, good faith. And what I believe that good faith ought to entail in terms of how it says is that the presbytery should be examining whether or not that stated difference um, is hostile to, to our system of doctrine and not merely on the substance of it, but in terms of the form that it means on what it means to be Presbyterian. Not to say that a person who disagrees with what it means to be Presbyterian historically couldn't be a Christian, but they're not um, confessing our, our system of doctrine if they're fundamentally departing from how we uh, understand that that doctrine. Does that make any sense, or should I articulate that better? No, no, I, I think it does make sense. I think just to just to summarize, you used Hodge's terms, and in the show notes I'll put the article that uh, Rich is highlighting from PCAhistory.org uh, with Hodge's sort of categories. But I think that it, in terms we, we speak today, you heard Rich say, you know, strict subscriptionists will take no no differences with the confession. Good faith subscription. Well, actually, I mean, it's in our book of church order. It says, uh, it is the right and responsibility of the presbytery to determine if the applicant is out of accord with any of the fundamentals of these doctrinal standards and as a consequence may not be able in good faith sincerely to receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine. Right. But then when somebody lists the difference, it says they shall be required, require the candidate to state the specific instances in which he may differ with the confession of faith and catechisms in any of their statements and or propositions. So some will use 
what I first read is almost like a system subscription statement, but it's not because clearly you have to list specific examples and propositions that you are taking disagreement with. It's very becomes very granular, and the press tree has to then rule exactly as Rich says. If, if they're uh, they can't be hostile to the system nor strike at the vitals of religion, which is our in, in that case, it's 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 what we are as the PCA, and and so. You know, there's strict subscription, good faith subscription, where we can have differences, but the system still needs to be able to hold together. Um, and and, and, and there's and an the agree- substance of doctrine subscription that I think that we're actually wrestling with in terms of people not actually or saying that they they don't they don't have a problem with certain things, but in one sense they're they're applying that um, thing from a substance of doctrine perspective. As an example, um, the it's very. I've never run into either at RPR or in an examination where somebody takes an exception or states a difference. I should say because the presbytery grants exceptions, persons state their differences. Um, I've never witnessed in any examination somebody t- uh, basically saying I, I'm stating a difference with the regulative principle of worship. But then when it comes out, people are are not actually the the, the arguments that they make are in contradiction to what the actual doctrine is the form that it takes not that not that it's just important to worship god um, in a way that's honoring to him but that god has prescribed the ways to be worshiped and often people say well you're just trying to worship people him in a certain way or prescribing the 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 hymns or all these other things no we're just saying that there are certain elements in that there are certain things in which you can't just say well I'm going to apply ashes, or I'm going to do this, and people do that, and it's not like they've stated a difference with the regulative principle. They're just they're just practicing it, or they don't even state a difference with liberty of conscience, which is is um, an important principle that we say we 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 don't have a a right to impose on any worshiper something that goes against his conscience, and yet it doesn't even occur to them that that something that they've just decided that they're going to practice from some other uh, Christian communion is not acceptable to a person who should, I guess, feel like when they walk into a Presbyterian church, they're not walking into an Anglican church. You know, I, I, I shared with you the article from Mere Orthodox, or the, the, the intro to Mere Orthodoxy, in which C.S. Lewis provides a good example mere, mere of... Christianity? Mere Christianity? Mere Christianity, Mere Christianity. Yeah. yeah, where he basically uses this analogy of, like, uh, he, what he's going to argue for is the hallway in terms of what it is, almost the the Catholic faith, as it were. He's trying to get people to into the hallway where they can kind of feel like, okay, this is what it means to be basically Christian. But you can't live there. You want to find a place where there's the, the furniture and all the other things where you can really honor God. And and so what we're trying to say is is not that we're the only room in Christianity. In fact, Presbyterians are historically the most um, the most I guess ecumenical when it comes to recognizing that people are Christian and that we don't require a person to become a a Presbyterian in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, as long as you've been baptized in the Evangelical Church and you know you're a member in good standing, you're welcome to our table. But what we're trying to say is that. This is this is the Presbyterian room, and what some people do is they'll they'll bring in they'll go they'll go over to the Anglican room and start bringing in you know uh, other things or maybe even the Roman Catholic room, and then when people 
uh, when people object, they're actually saying, hey, what... You're saying I thought I thought when you were in this room you agreed that you thought that our our room was was actually kind of you know a valid aspect of the of what it means to be Christian. We're not trying to separate from others, and we're not trying to be schismatic and saying we're the only part of Christianity. But this is what it looks like to be Presbyterian, and so and, and then gets into arguments about like you know about well you're being strict about the RPW. It's like no, we're we're just trying to articulate what it is to um, believe in the regular principle because that's what this room looks like so to speak this is what it looks like historically that's you know look at all the pictures on the wall so to speak why are you trying to rearrange all the furniture etc yeah so have you ever seen so by the way for again for listeners and because my hope is new ruling elders are listening to this and, and they may not be familiar with all the terminology rpw is the regulative principle of worship and basically in a reformed sense we only worship God how he has prescribed, how he's, he's regulated, and that's that really protects what we do and how we do what we do in worship. That's as opposed to a normative principle, which typically allows anything that's not forbidden. That is not us, but more and more we're seeing Presbyterian churches doing things uh, that aren't prescribed in Scripture as, as conducive or, or uh, required in corporate worship. Rich, do you see... Uh, have you ever read anything that sort of attributes the regulative principle of worship to the way we're supposed to read the standards also? And I'm sorry, why I'm saying that is up a little bit. What was the question? That uh, correlates the regulative principle of worship, of course, is, is how Scripture tells us how we're to worship and, and we're to follow that. Do you ever see that that principle should also apply Again, not in an inerrant sense or anything like that, but to the standards, to our Constitution. In other words, where, where steps are listed, we don't need negative prohibitions to to not do other things. We follow what it says. Yeah, so I mean, like, well, first of all, this is one of the things where it's, all, it's how things are all connected, right? So... If number one, you believe that man has fallen, and like, and first of all, that without without God condescending, you would have no fruition with Him. Where some people say, well, of course we'd have fruition with God because we can kind of understand Him. You know, He's altogether like us. You know, whereas we believe, no, God isn't like altogether like us. He's the Creator, we're the creature, and if He hadn't condescended, we wouldn't know anything of Him. And then you say, well, now, now, if we believe we're really fallen and dead in our sins and trespasses. How much more do we need a mediator, right, to, to, to have that fruition? And then you see, you see the, the, the presentation of Christ the mediator, then all of these evangelical graces, including how justification and sanctification work, all the things that he institutes in his church, and not just the church, the New Testament church, but understanding from a covenant aspect in terms of how God ordains worship, in, in a sense, because we believe that, hey, we're not good at creating ways to worship God because, you know, we tend to be, we're sinners, right? We're still, we're united to, to, to God as sinners. We're united to Christ as sinners. And so there is sort of a, an understanding that like God is, is prescriptive in how he is to be worshiped because we're not going to get it right if we're creative. And all examples in, in the scriptures prove that that's the case. And so then you, once you operate from that conviction, you're a little worried about like, you know, introducing new things. So so towards that end, then, you know, the whole point on, on the two aspects, which I don't think a lot of people appreciate, and this is why 
you know, when we're talking about confessional integrity, it boils down to, well, what does that mean in terms of how you practice ministry? On the one hand, um, you're, you're trying to, uh, you, first and foremost, you're, try, you're trying to obey God to say, worship me this way. And so he says, pray. I want you to pray and worship. I want you to sing songs. I want you to preach the word. I want you to engage in corporate confession, etc. So you're going to do that. On the other hand, you're also going to be protecting the congregants who are bound only to the word of God and not to your authority as an elder to say, well, whatever I say is right. Whatever I decide is right. You need to worship in this way. And so you're, you're, you're doubly like love of God and then love of neighbor that would keep you from doing anything in, script, uh, in worship that's not re- that, that God hasn't required and that he hasn't required of somebody else. And you rarely, if ever, when people bring that up, in fact, um, years ago, for instance, uh, I, I led a minority report on the RPR about the use of uh, an image of Christ on the bulletin of worship. And I, I knew that probably appealing merely to... Um, Merely to uh, the issue of you know the 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 argument about Christ's divinity and all that stuff, I was I was concerned that people wouldn't follow that. So I kind of nailed. We we had that in the in the paper, but what I really appealed to was was kind of like I guess um, the worshiper himself. Like why are you requiring me to worship Christ? Worship you with worship with you and have my conscience offended. You're, you're requiring me now, in, as I go into worship, to see an image of Christ when I came to you in corporate worship. And I appealed to what I believed would be probably people that weren't thinking about the fellow worshiper, but were only thinking about sort of themselves in one sense. It's sort of like they don't even realize that when they're doing that, they're not even... It's I think liberty of conscience is one of the most neglected... Um, aspects of our confession often and and so what was ironic about that it was that there was almost silence for a while and i thought that nobody was going to get up to the mic and the very first person to get up on the mic was almost like well what about me like i i didn't like i thought we allowed this as an exception and it was almost like the point was missed it was it was like the point was missed as to why that was in the confession and the point i was trying to underline is saying are you thinking about the worshiper and the very first argument from the floor was like, well, what about me? Me, 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 you know, kind of thing. And, that, and I think in a lot of cases, that's, I, I hate to be so, I mean, in some ways, we're all sinners, right? And so we're all prone to this. But in a certain sense, there is a sense in which the confession belongs to me as the person who's the minister. I've stated my differences, and now I get to apply them as I see fit. And I don't mean to be pejorative in that, but there's a sense in which it feels that way, that the the person gets to um, decide how the confession is to be applied, neglecting the aspect of the corporate nature of the way we confess together, as well as the fact that the persons coming to our congregations have a right to say, there are many other branches of the church Catholic. This is ours, and so there should be some expectation to say, "Do I should I really have to ask people all the time to say, is this PCA a good confessional place to go visit or not? And I know that sounds, um, sounds terrible, but that's kind of the questions that we ask sometimes because it's almost like because of the way that we practice our confession, you almost have to ask within a denomination whether or not what you can expect 
is going to be something that you thought was going to represent um, the confession, as it were. Does that make yeah, sense? no, it, it is. It is a. It is important because when somebody walks in a PCA church, they shouldn't have their conscience uh, bound by right. something yeah. that they, you know. And and when I and I, it's so you know. But Rich, that you know, the the heart. Our hearts are still sinful, you know, and yeah, so I mine, see that all the time in the church. Too. Where I'm not saying that they're, where they're, they're the only. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, yeah. no, I, not I at all, man. But we went to a, pre, a PCA church uh, a couple summers ago, and and the entire time, like in where the sermon should be, was used for a, a, a capital campaign. He was he was visiting that church during that, and he was really bothered that there was no preaching. And he reached out sure. to the pastor and said, "What what's going on? Like you didn't." You, there was no preaching and he said well i appreciate your view on that you know that's the way we believe that and it's like something as fundamental as the fact that there was even no sermon at all no preaching of the word is actually shocking and and in 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 a sense it's it's he doesn't even realize this is not the kind of li liberty of conscience is not for the elders it's for it they do have liberty of conscience but it's fundamentally protect the person whose conscience is bound to, to, to Christ, and nobody would ever think to do that if they thought that that was that they were responsible in that sense that they had this great care to say I can't do anything that that I might if I if if at the end of the day I might be convinced that I could kind of uh, get this to work out in some way that I do, do some sort of logic to the through the regulative principle to make that work. I still have to justify that now to the worshiper, right? And somebody coming in off the street who expects that this is what the Word of God teaches. And I don't think that that, that even computes in some people's mind as that goes forward. No, because again, because people want what they want. There's, there's a, it's that, it's the selfishness in the heart that says, you know, the, first of all, it's, it, it's against our Constitution. It's a more than valid scriptural interpretation that the majority of the denomination holds, but because somebody has a preference, they think they think it's a binding of their conscience not to have things the way they want it, as opposed to the other person that actually believes there's sin going on and has grounds for it. And you know, I, I a year ago I was at a presbytery meeting. Um, you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, but but I'm going to mention it. Uh, and they and they served in communion by intinction, mm -hmm. and they had, uh, but they had an option for for those of us that didn't want to take it as intinction. And so here, the table that's supposed to be uniting creates division for the majority of us that don't take communion by intinction and actually believe it's a violation of what our what our Lord teaches on right, the sacrament right, yeah. and what Paul teaches on the sacrament. And so now, like, are we guilty of First Corinthians? Uh, 11 on that where where there's division at the table so i'm taking this way and yeah. you're taking that yeah. way and then not only that what is it doing in my heart that i'm having to now consider these differences and if i'm being legalistic or if they're sinning and all this at the table that's supposed to unite and then you know when i've raised that it's like well you had the option so it's not binding your conscience and i'm like man that's just not our understanding of the table and Secondly, going to my point about the RPW, the, and my point is this, when the confession, or a book of church order for that matter, and that's different than our confession, but prescribes a procedure and gives steps, we don't have the liberty to not 
do them, to do them differently. If it says step one, step two, step three, we don't get to say, well, it doesn't say I can't do X, Y, Z. Yes, it does. By virtue of the fact that it's laying out the procedure, you follow the procedure. And, you know, again, we have a, a, a PCA teaching elder. I'm only saying this because it's completely public. He's written articles. He's done podcasts that says intinction, which is the dipping of the bread in the wine and eating together, is not against our confession. And yet our confession very clearly lays out that the bread and the wine are to be taken separately. And so, to me, this is part of this discussion where, well, the principle is you take the bread and the wine, and as long as you have the two elements, it doesn't matter how you have them. Well, that's a view this individual is forwarding. Mm -hmm. and, and our view is, well, no, the confession actually says how you take them. And there's a reason for that. The Lord gives us two elements, right. bread and wine, mm -hmm. to represent two things related yes but two two aspects and i think it's six times in in five verses paul says when you eat the bread and drink the cup in other words separately right, right. <laughs> uh you know the idea that we could do that differently and and you and and somebody can say that's actually allowed in the confession is a completely different understanding of what of of how the confession works. I mean, I don't know how more like if you can justify that, what can't you justify as long as there's not a prohibition? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's one of those things where you might um expect some of that out of someone who who is maybe not studied or expected to understand like not only uh uh re regular principle and liberty of conscience, but even just how the sacraments are signs and seals and the fact that the the signs and the 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 physical physical actions themselves are tied to something that's intended to communicate some seal something some reality to that so the action itself isn't immaterial for instance it's not um christ doesn't say um just you know as long as you have bread and wine and some sort of like thing where you as long as it gets into your stomach this is what's important right um you know the 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 things represent signify something something that's sealed separately right and so it gets into those those kinds of things where you know and and i think that if we um that if we stopped and reflected or if the person would be willing to just even understand what are the reasons why people would have a problem with and not only my brothers but also the people the congregation that I I decided this was a good idea from now now I essentially I'm I'm making it so a person uh, coming won't feel comfortable worship with with me or have any fellowship with me which is the very point of how the table is supposed to operate and it, it makes it easy if you just you know, uh, do what is basically commanded by the Lord and not try to say, well, in certain instances, I can come up with a, a reason why it's even more unifying because we can dip the thing out of a common cup or something like that. And, you know, um, what, whatever other reasons might seem plausible. This was the, this, this was the debate years ago where I was, I was convinced, wow, the PCA um, can go in a number of directions when the intinction debate came up on the floor of GA because the debate, the arguments for it were not recognizably um, confessional, right? In other words, if I'm going to argue 
a, a case to somebody in a way that I say, I'm going to steel man my argument, not straw man my argument, I'm a steel man. I'm going to present my argument in a way that you will understand everything that you're concerned about, and I'm going to um, argue against this. And it's almost like the exact opposite. Everything that you would think that um, that that would be the very thing that a person say, well, there's a lot of things that people have done in church history that doesn't make it right. It's almost like, well, people have been doing this for a long time. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, you're 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 not you're not making a very co- you're not making a very convincing uh, Presbyterian argument when you tell me how many ways people can do different things or or um, you know that. Uh, and and so the point is, is that it gets to the issue of whether or not our confessions are studied and applied or, or merely when it comes to the point of the confession and understanding those sorts of things, it's sort of like, well, I know this is over here, but on this point, I'm going to use an argument that's not confessional. And I'm going to basically try and convince you that what I'm doing is scriptural. And then they'll say, well, what's important to me is scripture. And so the confession is a secondary document. And it's sort of like, but we're, we're in a church that confesses these things. And so I think that that gets to the issue again on what it means to be confessional on whether or not you feel like you owe anything to the people that are convinced that what the confessions teach is scriptural in this, again, in this portion, in this room within the hallway of Christianity, this is what the furniture looks like. And and you keep saying, well, I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not not gonna talk to you about why you do things uh, in the Lord's Supper that way. I'm just gonna start doing it, and then and then I'm gonna present all these arguments from the other room to you, and you're expected to just say, oh, that's scriptural. That's okay. Go ahead and do that, and not recognizing that no, there's a reason why we've done this, and there's a reason why a person shouldn't have to keep arguing about that. You talk about being on mission. Why why should we have to keep revisiting things that we've been discussing for centuries as to we don't do that for this reason and then they say well we're never on mission it's like well it would help if we just did things that were basically that we've agreed to for a long time rather than introducing them again and saying you're distracting me from mission it's like well yeah but you're the one like bringing these things back up that we've dealt with over and over again. We shouldn't have to rehash whether or not concupiscence is sin. We shouldn't have to rehash a number of things, and yet um, they come up as if they're the first person to make the arguments in church history that, that have a long pedigree as to why Reformed and Presbyterian don't do those sorts of things. And we're not, again, we're not trying to be mean. We're not trying to be, say, well, we're slaves to the confession and for that reason alone. But this is what it means to be historically Presbyterian. And you should realize that you're going to constantly be in friction against people who think that way within a Presbyterian church. You know, if you if you only yeah. baptize believers and you're against infant baptism, then the PCA is not for you. Yeah, yeah so... Two episodes ago, when I read Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, uh, sermon in air quotes, the, uh, his opening statement was address something about addressing this controversy that the fundamentalists have thrust on us. Mm, you know, right. and, and that's kind of what you're saying, is we're not the ones bringing... Like, I, I don't know very many. I mean, I know there are guys that are out there sin-sniffing. They're always looking for... I, I, it's things are coming to the forefront, 
and then we address them, and we're the ones bringing controversy. You know, and it, it, again, it's the same thing with why you know why are we all just focused on this one sin? Well, really, I don't know anybody that was just focused on one sin, right. but mm-hmm. events happened in the PCA that brought it to the forefront. We don't want to be talking about it, but we're going to deal with what's in front of us. So yeah, no no doubt, this it's just the same. It's just the same thing. It's uh, those that are innovating viewed those that are just trying to operate within our agreed upon principles as uh, we're the ones causing the problems. And yeah, and, and I've seen multiple. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and, yeah. it's, and and so as an example, there was a there was a an article posted, I guess on, I guess really this is one of the interesting things I found about GRN articles, and in fact even counter articles that are written as if. The fact that people are, are saying, and, and I'm not a member of the GRN, I don't have a problem with it. I, I like what they're doing, so I'm not, by saying I'm not a member of GRN, I just want to make sure that people say, like, oh, Rich is like some sort of card-carrying member of the GRN, like something like that exists. But the point is, I like what they post, but in this case, um, somebody wrote a good article arguing for a particular kind of being a little bit more diligent in terms of how we practice uh, Reformed worship. And, and... Um, and then it was almost it's it's almost met with I know your agenda. <laughs> it's like you're trying to force everybody into your mold, and 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 it's it's sort of like uh, the most offensive thing you can do in certain cases is saying this is wrong. We shouldn't have um, all of this variety in worship. And in fact, it was almost presented with a lot of uh, applause, as it were, that. Um, that the diversity in worship is the very thing that the PCA marks the PCA. It's a beautiful thing that we're di- diverse in worship, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, it wasn't even argued for. It wasn't. E- it was neither scripturally argued for nor confessionally argued for. It was just argued for that that diversity is a good thing. Now, um, toward that end, uh, I as as somebody uh, that I interact with, with said. He's been in uh, foreign contexts, in contexts all over the, the PCA, in which the regulative principle is adhered to, and yet it looks different, right? So I'm not saying that it's all going to be like organ music or piano music or just exclusive psalmody or whatever, but the RPW can take a number of different shapes. But what I'm saying is that, that we're not even talking about that. We're talking about the idea that diversity itself in worship is a good thing. And anytime somebody tries to come in and say, I think we're kind of departing from our system of doctrine, then, then another system of doctrine thought comes in that's not really even scripturally argued for or confessionally argued for, but asserted and then applauded because some people are, are again, they're not really thinking in terms of, well, have I thought about, could I defend this with the RPW, or would I, do I even care whether or not I could? Could I actually, could I actually argue, say, you have a strict view of the RPW, and what I'm doing is fine, and say, okay, let's take you up on that, let's ask you to go through and articulate, this is what the thing says about the RPW, and now, now using the thing in which you took no stated differences in our uh, using only that, articulate how you're actually conforming to that doctrine. That doesn't need, that's not even, that's not even the basis upon which they're making the argument, if that makes sense. No, totally, totally. And so to kind of summarize, and, and as we begin to wrap up, you know, how this plays out, and, and like I said way early on, 
being confessional is not simply affirming the nuts and bolts, but it's seeing how the whole thing is interrelated and connected and understanding the implications to it. And it very much has to do with the hermeneutic. So, you know, like my biggest issue in the PCA is not intinction. As a matter of fact, I know churches are doing it. I'm not looking for it. I particularly probably wouldn't want to worship there, but that's, you know, but why I've been vocal about this in different contexts is because when it's argued for that it's allowed, that the that our confession actually allows it, it's imposing a hermeneutic on the Westminster Standards that is just, it, it, it it's just a completely different view of what the confession is. When Rich explains, I think Rich did a good job in a, in a couple of cases explaining how, again, the interrelated nature of it. It's not simply like, well, I took an exception for the second commandment, so, uh, you know, I can, I can have an image on my bulletin. But having an image of Christ on the bulletin is actually more than just a Westminster Larger Catechism 10 whatever. Uh, second commandment violation. It's also a violation of, of what the confession says on the regulative principle of worship. It's also a, a, a violation of the binding of others worshippers' consciences who are coming down to worship the Lord. In other words, there's a connectedness. You can't just pull one piece out and think it all still works together. Like when Rich was talking about pedo communion I'm sorry, uh, yeah, pedo communion or when we talked about intinction, like it's not simply like how we do uh, the sacrament it's what is a sa- what is a sacrament what is you know how is that a sign and a seal and how are the elements involved representative of that and so th- there's an interrelated nature to these things it can't just be i agree with that doctrine as if that doctrine is in isolation um but like I said, as I as I said, we kind of have to wrap up, Rich. I yeah, and if I could just pull that thread a little bit more, because I don't want to leave. I want to leave people with the right impression. If I zoom Good. out even further from a her- hermeneutic standpoint, it's that God um, God is the creator and we're the creature. And so what we're trying to do here is that um, the people who are concerned about this aren't concerned because the system itself is some sort of like this invaluable logic that if you violate it that somebody's somebody's offended because hey that doesn't work you know you can't make that work and that we're somehow offended that some sort of man-made system has been offended and there's there's a, a a lack of logic there it really gets to the fact that everything flows together from the fact that god has condescended to us in christ that he's the mediator that he's given us these things in certain ways it's the reason why we believe church membership is important why we believe baptism is important before a person receives com- communion not because we're saying, hey, this is the logic and we're offended by the logic and we're just these mean-spirited pr- persons, but we because we think that God gave us these things as good things. And when we and when we um, when we violate a person's conscience, we're dealing with somebody who's created in the image of a God whose conscience belongs to God. He's he's the worshiper, and all of these things matter ultimately because we care about people. We care about one another. We want to see Christians formed um, properly, and you know I want to see people have a proper understanding of sanctification and justification uh, because these things matter. And and again, we're not unchurching other um, people in in the uh in in the church catholic 
but we're saying that I can't do ministry in good conscience without doing ministry in a way that I think God has commanded me to. And so I'm bound by God's word as an elder to do it, do what I think he says is good for people, not what I imagine is good for them. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great summary, Rich. And, you know, if you saw the outline that uh, I wanted to talk through, we never got to this idea of tiers of doctrine or big tent, the PCA being a big tent denomination and, and, and all that. I'm curious if you want to come on again and have those conversations. Sure, yeah. I've got all the time in the world. It's not like I have a job yeah. or anything. So, so let's follow this one up with, with a – yeah, I know, right? I know. Uh, hey, me, <laughs> me too. I'll be editing all night now. Um, so – yeah, because I think the I think the the concept of tier uh, doctrinal tiers has been important um, as part of this conversation. So let's let's have that in the future. Uh, but until then, uh, this is George Sayor with Ruling Elder Rich Lino. Thanks again, Rich, yeah, thanks. to come Appreciate on. It. Yeah, sure. Uh, good enough. If you like Presbyterian Reformed Churchmen, share it with your other Ruling Elder friends. Have a good one. <laughs>